Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for joining us as always, everyone. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of September 11th, 2023. All right. So I wanted to kick this off, uh, Lee, with a bleeping computer article. Um, it's called Microsoft Teams Phishing Attack Pushes Dark Gate Malware. There's two reasons I want to bring this up. Um, one, you know, it's it, we've seen phishing attacks where people basically are able to compromise some third-party uh, owner that has space in Office 365, and they use those accounts to try to then kind of fish other organizations um, through Teams. Uh, when they allow that type of communication across and, you know, distribute malware and things. But I also wanted to point out, you know, when I was first looking at this article, I was thinking, okay, so, you know, in the details, they kind of show, yeah, there's some scripts that get run after the payload comes down. They don't really show any of the scripts. They kind of show why it's bad. Um, and then it kind of make the tie to dark gate malware. And so I kind of went through my, you know, approach of, okay, well, if I was looking just at this information, what would I do to detect this or identify this or hunt for it? So I was thinking, well, okay, anything that Teams executes uh, may be interesting, but then, you know, that kind of got me down the path where some tools that might not be as easy to do because it's not really what Teams executes, it's the what Teams executes then executes, right? So, you know, obviously people share documents all the time through Teams. So you're going to open those up and okay, maybe you'll see, you know, a PDF or you'll see some office documents get opened or, you know, whatever that may be. And that's not really telling. But then if you were to look at the child processes of those, maybe that would be. And, you know, depending on what kind of tools you have in your organization, you might be able to see kind of grandparent processes as part of the data set, or you might have to do some pivoting which could be kind of a lot. Um, and, you know, I figured you'd have to start with, okay, well, what kind of files are usually shared through Teams and open initially, and then kind of dwell or dig through that and kind of get an idea of building a separate hunt on, okay, of those different types of things, do they actually have child processes or not? Uh, but, you know, we always talk about it's really important to go to, when you find articles, um, to go try to find the source, right? Um, in this case, they reference the researchers and their researchers are from TrustedSec. Um, and so I pivoted over to that and then it was much, much easier um, to figure out how to identify the attack because they had some really good details that I think are much easier to identify in general. Um, but what was interesting um, first was I liked with right off the rip when they said they discovered this type of attack. Um, they use the AAD internals OSINT tool, which basically lets you gather Office 365 tenant information. 
So they're able to basically look for other domains that might be registered under those Office 365 accounts to look for additional phishing um, campaigns through Teams. That is a great technique for, you know, if you're doing instant response or things like that, how to kind of, I guess, make sure you, you've gathered all the information you need to identify all the different vectors there. Um, but they did a good job walking through the attack and actually what was contained in it. Other than, um, you know, pulling the files down through teams they kind of went through analyzing the files and you know they mentioned another really good tool when they uh, analyzed the lnk file that was within the zip uh they use eric zimmerman's le le command.exe um tool which basically was able to pull out the script so they can see kind of what was being run uh which you know is good to know and then they analyzed the vbs script and saw what the callouts were um and, you know, in, in the analysis, too, what was interesting is they were able to identify um, basically that curl was being used uh, directly to an IP address. And, you know, that was something from the original article that would be kind of hard to suss out uh, because they didn't really go into the actual details like that. And that was kind of pulled from a screenshot, too. Um, but basically, you know, they're calling the curl.exe going directly to an IP. Um, that's an easy thing to detect. And also when you're looking at user agents, curl has its own user agent, unless there's flags to change it, they're being utilized. So I thought that was another um, good way to identify this type of attack other than the phishing part specifically. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other additional things that I thought were really um, good to call out. I think that was pretty much it. But Basically, I just want to call out how sometimes when you get an original source of information, um, it's not so much about how well do you digest and pivot through that information. It's where does that information come from? And can you find other sources that are referencing the same information? Because it seems like everyone kind of includes different details. And we've talked internally, you know, from hunter to hunter. Like if I read something and you read something, we always pull something different out that we may you know, use based on our skill sets or things that catch our eye. Uh, and I feel like any kind of reporting is the same way. So it really is uh, advantageous to basically look at all of your different sources um, to kind of shed more light and kind of put a bit better picture together to give you the right tools and things to look for. You are 100% correct. Bleeding computer does a great job at providing you with the headline and the details that are needed to understand what happened. While it's more high level, something like um, almost like an executive summary that you could hand this to anyone that they could read and they would understand. What they're very good at is referencing the original article um, of the organization that published the findings. Um, so anytime you're reading a believing computer uh, and you want more technical details, feel free to you know find that link and go take a look at the uh, original article. Like you said, it was from TrueSet. Um, I felt the same way looking at how they walked through the analysis of it, mentioning, like you said, Eric Zimmerman's tools, um, the AAD internals. Um, they even have screenshots of good old Wireshark. So don't think that we're not, you know, including the basics, right? Mm -hmm. And something else that I thought about, as you mentioned it, it's, it might not be able to directly be tied to Microsoft Teams, but if you are using a tool um, like in an EDR, or if you have Sysmon in a sim, there are actually ways that you can take a look at events, not just from a 
parent and child relationship perspective. But some EDRs have the ability to go back a generation further and look at your grandparent process, which would then include the parent process and the child process in the string or in the attack, uh, which you could definitely uh, use. Um, or it may help if you are still within a stone's throw of that process coming out of, you know, the team's application that's running. But those are, those are all very good threat hunting uh, techniques that you can use. Now, something that threw me off while I was reading this, this reminded me of that vulnerability that we mentioned, I think, back in June about the external organizations or external users being able to deliver malware directly into a user's inbox by specially crafting a post request. And do you remember that one where you needed, yeah. like, you needed a server itself? While this might not be directly related to that, the one thing that did tie it together was that both of these attacks are available because external conversations is allowed and it's allowed by default so whenever you first install teams or stand it up that by default it is enabled uh, so if you are an organization that is uh, smaller or medium and you have the ability to turn that off because you don't have to um, communicate with other external organizations feel free to do so now i understand that gets a little more complicated as the organizations get bigger and whatever industry they're in, the fact that you're able to go through with these attacks simply because there's an external user, you know, it really shed some light on, uh, I guess, different uh, organizations' uh, risks that they allow or uh, what's the tolerate, I guess. That was just, uh, that's what stuck out to me. Seems like that's uh, going to be a problem until... It's either address or all organizations adopt the policy of um, no external communications. Yeah, it's where that uh, futures and uh, future and things and convenience and things can uh, sometimes be the bane of security. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what do you got? So, the first article that I have actually isn't an article, but it's more of a resource. Uh, I, I found this interesting. It was a um, it's a GitHub repo called boring tools slash get alerts. What it does or what it's been designed to do is it addresses the problem where GitHub repositories that are created by uh, users of an organization cannot be controlled by the organization itself unless that organization is part of GitHub's enterprise managed user model. Um, so they have their own like identity, I guess, service or maybe not service, but tool that you can purchase um, where you're, you know, whoever you deem the admin of your organization can control repos being created by your users. Well, what happens if your organization isn't using that? Really, you don't have any visibility into it, um, or you do have some, um, as long as that user is creating repos underneath uh, the organization. But you can't restrict or control or have any um, really security controls in place. Um, so what this does is it, is it opens up the, uh, the risk of old repositories, uh, becoming stagnant, but still vulnerable, especially if they're public facing. And then in the case of, you know, like Google Lyft, 
they had links to uh, tools and repos that were, they had different organizations that no longer existed because they had acquired them. All right. So what you can do here is you can scan GitHub repos uh, or repositories belonging to your organization, your organization users. You can monitor for new public repos being created by your org or users. And then you can actually monitor it and have an alert go to Slack. Um, so this is kind of is a workaround to get that visibility into GitHub that you might not have if you are not purchasing that um, the enterprise model. Now, at first, I really wasn't thinking much about this. It seemed like more of an admin kind of deal. Um, but then, you know, doing the research, it was like, well, what does this even lead to? And there was a uh, there was an attack that was recently revealed called Repo Jack. And if you're not aware of what that is, it is an attack where a malicious actor registers a username and creates a repository used by an organization in the past, but which has since changed its name. In Google's case, whenever they acquired that company and then ch then changed its name because it no longer exists, well, you could tech if they still have a link or a page that points to that old organization, you could technically clone the repo and then have people go to that link and then serve up your own malicious stuff. Um, so it, yeah, if anything ever does change in your organization, or if there's any name changes or big issues like that, this would be a tool that gives you an idea of that visibility into what's going on within your organization. Yeah, so when I saw this, I kind of thought about always the problems that occur when users are able to create public accounts with their company email, right? This example, like, you know, and this is a good example too, where they're able to create a repo and sign up for a GitHub account with their company email. And we, you know, we used to stress about the problems of like password reuse. Like what if they use the same passwords on these public forums that we don't even know about and those forums or wherever they use them get, you know, breached. So their passwords get exposed and then that password reuse can then technically attack the organization. So kind of have you think of that, but then you also, like you were describing, you know, if, if people are using repos and putting things I'm assuming if they're going to sign up with their company account then or the organizational account, then they're also going to be probably utilizing organizational things in their GitHub stuff. And granted, if they make it private, it's not as big of a deal. And this is obviously looking across the public space. But, I mean, it is kind of a good to know, right? Like, you know, one of the things um, that's interesting when you think about protecting yourself from threats is threats always have to do reconnaissance. Like, it's never a... A threat usually never attacks without some sort of information. Like they wouldn't know what to attack, or that you or things even exist to attack, right? Um, and sometimes the best defense against reconnaissance isn't necessarily shutting everything down so you can't be discovered, because that's not really applicable to business in general. But doing your own reconnaissance so that you are aware of what information is available, so that you can then set up, you know those tripwires or things for information you know might be leveraged against you. Um, so you're able to kind of kind of have those insights from a defensive perspective, which is, you know, probably some of the greatest information you can you can leverage and use, especially for very unique use cases and detections you might want to create. Um, but that being said, that's kind of where I feel like this falls, right, is just kind of knowing yourself and knowing your exposure. And some things you might be able to shut down, some things you might be able to control, and some things you might not. But knowing is, you know, uh, just as important as being able to control it too. So 
so yeah, it's kind of an interesting tool that someone created to be able to crawl that space based on, you know, those different criterias. Cool, cool. So the next one, it's a Z scaler. And you know, this one I, I liked a lot. Um for one main well, a few reasons, but there's a couple main reasons and I'll get to that at the end. But it's it's one of those um reports. It's it's the technical analysis of the hijack loader. So they call it the new evasive malware downloader with a modular architecture. And it is a, a well-designed loader. Um, it relies on a lot of the syscalls and API calls. So it's not there's not a lot of execution that you would be able to see it performing um, very easily without the right types of tools. And so it, it can kind of fly under the radar there. It does a lot of delayed execution depending on what products exist. So it knows how to circumvent a lot of different products based on ex- like delays. And it does a bunch of like you know, multi-stage loading too. So it's another way to kind of circumvent some things where it's kind of broken up into pieces. So kind of well designed for all that. And, and you know, when you look at these reports too, they like break out all the capabilities and all the modules and all the information is very detailed. And for me, it kind of like instills fear. Like it's like you read these reports as an analyst, you're like, man, this seems really um, important. I understand all the things so I can understand the impact so I go right from, you know, what something is to the impact, but there's nothing in between for a, in my tool set to how I can detect this thing, right? So it kind of creates that anxiety. Um, and when I come across reports like this, like they're very telling and, and the research is always really well done. Um, it's nothing against that, but, you know, I want to figure out how to operationalize it. And, you know, the two key things I always focus on when I hit these really technical analysis type reports is how does it execute and how does it persist? Because those are usually two mechanisms that they can't custom code around. And in this case, there's really two ways that they actually persist. Um, And one is basically using a bitch job, um, which points to an executable file. And the other is adding a shortcut file, an LNK file to the startup folder in Windows which points to the same location as an executable file as the uh, as the bits. So the challenge is, is when you're looking for execution of LNKs, it's not always clear cut, right? Because all you'll see pretty much when something starts up from Windows, when it's in the startup folder is Explorer launches something, which is kind of the same user experience if a user opens up anything. Uh, so then you're kind of having to pay attention to, okay, um, boot times combined with execution, you know, or log on times combined with execution uh, sometimes. So you can do some temporal analysis there. You're also looking at potential, um, you know, interesting paths where things may be stored that aren't the common things that a user would open directly. Cause you know, users typically uh, open common executables and programs that they typically use on a day to day, or they open things that are more accessible, not like digging into weird folder structures. And then the bitch job. So in the bitch job, the other thing to take note there is uh, there's a specific flag that's the set notify command. And that basically says, hey, when the bitch job is done, execute this. And it's usually the way it's structured is it's calling out the you know bits set notify command, the name of the bits job, the path of whatever you want to run and then followed by a null because there's no parameters or you can supply parameters depending on you know what it is you're trying to run. 
And so they didn't call that directly out in the report, but I know if you're going to execute something from bits, that's how you do it. Um, so, you know, with research, right, you can, you can figure some of those things out. And with that, you know, you, you have some good ways to detect this somewhat stealthy malware to know something exists. And then if you get your hands on the actual executable, right, then you can compare any kind of analysis you want to run this in a sandbox or some other type of tool that kind of rips it apart. You might be able to see some of the things that confirm it that are in this report. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's a very detailed report and like breaks out all the different modules. And they did say that they um, they called out a bunch of different files that it tries to do uh, uh, side loading for DLLs. Uh, but it didn't mention what executables that I could find quickly uh, for what, which ones they targeted for the side loading. So that was something else I was going to try, try to track down if you, you know, see these certain executables being called after this is being called or, you know, child process of this specific executable in these locations kind of thing. But those are kind of the things I typically look for. Like, that's why I think in MITRE, my favorite things to look at are persistence and execution, because those are the things that are OS specific, right? It's like you're taking advantage of what Microsoft develops, not of a malware developer or someone else. Now, granted, people find interesting ways to use what Microsoft develops in their Windows platform. But it's they're still strained and stuck to that architecture and how that's configured. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of what I want to call out in this one. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, absolutely right. So I, I guess I want to say great minds think alike, because part of the things I look for is always persistence. Um, simply because that's I, I probably said it before, but if you can find persistence and you can cut off the adversary getting um, repeatable access to your machine, then you're like buying a lot of time. Right, they can't get into your machine and continue to compromise it uh, unless they compromise it through you know other means like another machine or God forbid uh, the user clicks the same link or another email whatever the case may be. Um, but I do love looking for um, the persistences that I set up, especially in places like the startup folder, right? Um, or oh, and the registry keys for the run registry keys, those uh, and schedule tabs. Schedule tasks weren't mentioned in here, but those are the things that I, I kind of like to look for right away. Mm -hmm. I also was fascinated by how each module kind of like the anti-analysis mm -hmm. like grew. <laughs> like the first module, I think they were talking about the, the initialization phase or the first stage loader. It looked for like, you know, services like Avast, uh, Microsoft Windows Defender. I mean, there's like five listed. Then you go on to the second stage and it talks about anti-analysis again, or sorry, not the second stage, uh, the TI module. So there's more anti-analysis. And then the very end, there it is, uh, which is the execution phase. There's a ton. You're looking for a vast ESEC, Spursky, Norton, you name it. But the fact that it was just slowly building um, kind of shows like how the adversary is thinking. Um, it kind of shows the knowledge that they have of that they're not like it, it kind of shows that it's more targeted, right? It's well, they didn't want to show their hand too early, right? right? It, it, they right. didn't want to. So they're slowly building and slowly building, and finally, whenever it really matters, like the execution, they're like, "We want this to work. We're gonna look for everything that's on here, add the list, um, and you name it." But you're right. This is, was a very, very um, good report. Um, the fact that it says that it, like you said, it utilizes syscalls to evade monitoring. 
the things that I would look for is all that discovery phases, like uh, services being looked up, um, you know, persistence, uh, looking at you know, this when, or things created in a startup folder, things created in an updated directory, uh, and, you know, strange things. Uh, but no, very, very good article. Cool. Yeah, that's all I got on that one. What do you got next? So next up is, it was a FBI report. Um, so it wasn't a lot of uh, technical details. It was just the overview, then, you know, call to action. So it says FBI identifies Lazarus Group cyber actors as responsible for theft of $41 million from Stake.com. Now, Stake.com is an online casino and betting platform. Now, if you know uh, or if you've ever heard of the Lazarus Group, uh, they are from North Korea. And this is, uh, and they've been tied to a lot of attacks uh, or a lot of crypto uh, campaigns. Simply because when you look at the state of North Korea, uh, you know, heavily sanctioned by the world, uh, not just the U.S., but there's definitely a lot of restrictions placed on trade with North Korea. So if you can't make a lot of money with, well, first of all, the, the way the government runs too, I mean, it's not really like the people are meant to make money, but if your government needs money, how do you get it? And it's always been through cyber theft and like banking because that, that's their number one goal, right? You think about uh, China, they're looking for, you know, IP uh, or um, what's the I stand for? Proprietary property. Yeah, thank you. Intellectual property and proprietary information. I always mess those up. Uh, and then Russia is always looking for like military intel, right? Or just dirt that they can. Um, but, you know, that's that's what... Um, that's the Lazarus script. Now, if I were to start hunting from this report, there really isn't much to go off of. Um, so the normal way I handle something like this is I go to one of my favorite resources, which is uh, the MITRE attack manuals, right? Attack.MITRE.org. It's where we find our tactics, techniques, uh, sub-techniques. It drives a lot of our research, our hypotheses, you name it. But what they also provide is not just tactics, techniques, and sub-techniques, but they also provide information that they've gathered on different groups and malware. Um, and actually now campaigns, they've added that, which is nice. Um, but I would go to the uh, MITRE attack matrix, go to APT38, which is another name for the Lazarus group. Um, or actually, hold on. Did they separate those? They did. Okay. So they actually separated Lazarus group from APT38. And if you go there, you can find the list of campaigns that they witnessed. So Operation Dream Job was last seen August 2020. Um, I'm sure this will be added soon as soon as they update it. Um, but something that's very useful here is it gathers the Lazarus Group's TTPs as seen by reports, uh, you know, researchers, and so on. But they also provide the attack navigated navigator layers, which if you view, it looks like the MITRE attack. It's got the grid layout or it's got the matrix. But what it is what else it does is it highlights the different techniques that it used. So they highlight them so that you can visually see what TTPs they've used. So if I get this FBI report and I don't know where to start, the first thing I'm going to do is jump to this matrix of whether APT38 or Lazarus Group, but you can start seeing things that they've done historically. 
because if they've done them historically, normally it's because they work and that they're comfortable doing it and that they're going to, or, you know, they've been successful in the past. So why change it? Um, so just taking a look at the APT 38, I see, you know, spear phishing attachment. I see PowerShell usage, a uh, windows command, visual basic, and so on. But what I would do is I would find these TTPs, uh, start creating queries based around them. And unfortunately, because you don't have like a smoking gun or you don't have a lot of technical details in this report, you might have to start in a general perspective, right? I'm looking for all scheduled tasks created in the last 30, 60, 90 days. And then I'm going to start whittling down the results to say, well, you know, hey, let's, you know, this looks normal. I can identify this user. Or if you have to go through and actually contact the users, and get the business justification of all these scheduled tasks or whatever it may be. I don't really have a specific threat hunting tip for this file. Like, well, like I said, looking for persistence and so on. But going to the attack navigator, that will give you, or that will actually provide you a better starting place for your or for each organization uh, than I could personally tell you. Sorry for the ramble, but what did you think? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I kind of do a similar approach when I when I see something that is, you know, related to an actor, but there's not a lot of technical detail, obviously, then it kind of becomes a seed for further research. Right. And, you know, the one thing that you can kind of derive from that spe specific article you brought up is the financial motivation. Right. So then, you know, one of the things I think about too, if I'm, if I'm going to be a potential target is, do I have resources to fulfill their financial motivations? Right. If I'm not in a sector and a target, then I feel a little better. Um, unless, you know, I have something to lose that they have something to gain financially. But, you know, one of the things, you know, just looking at North Korea and some of the things they've come out with, you know, I came across just a real quick, uh, article that was on NSA.gov. They kind of break apart. Um, and it was this year, they're basically alerting about all the impersonation that happens, um, to collect intelligence, um, based on impersonating targets. And so they which was kind of an interesting thing that, you know, we've talked about it before, but when you have advanced threats or nation um, state level threats, a lot of the infrastructure for a cyber group is um, broken up and specialized, right? Um, and in this specific report, they kind of call out, you know, there is an actual dedicated North Korea Reconnaissance General Bureau. They call it the RGB, which I thought was interesting. Um, but their main role is to collect a bunch of information about individuals they want to impersonate to then leverage to do more successful phishing attacks on their targets. Um, which I, yeah, I believe every nation sits the same way, right? They have a group that really does a good job gathering information so that, you know, they can have more successful attacks. But I thought this was interesting because they do a big emphasis on impersonating people and the phishing component. Um, and the one thing they call out, which I think everyone should always be aware of, right, is a lot of times when they are impersonating um, individuals, they're using unofficial email addresses. Like, I mean, think of Google, Yahoo, Outlook, whatever, right? Um, and they might make it look like it's coming from their personal email account kind of thing uh, to try to get someone to do something like your traditional phishing emails. But I thought that was a good, good take because... Um, one, financially motivated attackers are, I would say, similar to ransomware, right? They they're want to be quick. 
they want to get in, get what they want and kind of get out. There's no real reason to persist, uh, depending on the motivations. And so I picture it the same way. They spend a lot of front end effort to get that initial access, which is why they invest so much time on this, the, you know, RGB collection of, you know, information to impersonate, uh, just so they can get in do whatever they need to do to be able to pull money or get some financial means out. So, you know, I thought that was kind of a, a good tie to, you know, if I was thinking about defending against this in general, knowing that I'm probably not a target because I have nothing financially motivated is looking, okay, well, if they were to be messing with things like that, um, that might be a good thing to kind of keep an eye out or, or have reports on or see what that looks like in general in my environment. That's really neat. I, I didn't go that far. I think I, I mean, I went really different route you did, but that, that's, that's very, that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, no, that's why we always look at things differently, right? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so, how are you going to bring this home? Yeah, so nothing super technical, but um, I thought it was interesting um, because there's always been this uh, conversation. Oh, let me go ahead and disclose what article we're going to talk about. So this is the uh, infosecuritymagazine.com, and they were basically reported the UK government backs down on anti-encryption stance. So, you know, if, if people have been uh, kind of close to how people are going to handle privacy and how, you know, Big Brother is going to manage when, you know, we want everything encrypted to protect things and how Big Brother can, I guess, keep things safe if everything is encrypted. And there are, there's a lot of requirements going on from government to say, hey, all these um, producers of technology or resources, uh, they need they use encryption, they need to kind of basically build in a backdoor so if the government needs to they can leverage it to be able to see information and you know it's caused a huge stir as far as is that good is that bad or you know what does that mean um and this article basically says that they've kind of backed out of that stance in the uk saying you know they basically are not trying to force whatsapp and signal um to basically build in this backdoor and you know they i guess they're kind of honoring you know the, the privacy and there and there's not necessarily a need specifically for that um which is an interesting take because it seems like a lot of the the world was government world was kind of going more that we need to have that visibility but it made me think of something and you know because it's september 11th it kind of calls it back for me is there's a a good documentary that really focuses on metadata um and what it means to get information without actually having the information and it's called a good american and it was a documentary about 9-11 and analysis um as far as how things could have been detected and things like that they basically it highlights a, a top code breaker in the nsa um who in his career did a, an exceptional job to predict things just purely based on who communicated and not what was communicated uh, so, you know, it just shows that, you know, there are capabilities and ways that, you know, data has already been leveraged where you don't necessarily need to be able to read the direct text and things. Now, granted, would there be an advantage there? Yeah, potentially. But, you know, at the sake of, you know, people's rights and privacies, there's still ways that, you know, information can be gleaned. So I'm just using this article to kind of talk through that, an interesting topic. But also, you know, if people haven't checked out A Good American, I recommend it's a very fascinating. I There's some conspiracy stuff in there, whether or not, you know, you're into that stuff or not. But I really was into it for the data analysis piece. 
Um, the way they talk about data, the way they talk about metadata and analytics on that data really opened my eyes in a lot of ways for how data in general can be used. So when you think about all the data that gets collected by insurance companies or um, ad agencies and all the tracking cookies and things, like there's there's definitely a lot of ways data can be used um, to fingerprint a lot of things and it doesn't have to be super specific. So um, definitely a good you know, point of reference there to check that out. But uh, yeah, what'd you think when you saw the article? I think I was absolutely shocked that this came out of uh, Europe, yeah. uh, especially because um, ironically, or I guess I shouldn't say ironically, um, you know, I, I think, well, yes, ironically, it, the fact that today is September 11th, that, we, that you brought up this article, um, it kind of seemed like uh, the Patriot Act fell over again, right? Um, where, or was it Patriot Act? I mean, the Patriot Act, I believe, was the, uh, where they had the ability to have more oversight in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. So it just seemed like, uh, you know, no, don't get me wrong. September 11th was definitely a reason for that. Whether it was a good idea or bad idea is, uh, the Patriot Act, um, is still, you know, kind of be seen. I think we're still seeing consequences of that uh still um but the idea that they used the um justification of child um sexual exploitation and abuse as the reason for scanning these messages and or so basically scan the message first before it gets encrypted see what it said and then go about it that just it seems like a good and plausible reason to do that. But what repercussions are you going to have now? And if 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 you give it give them an inch, you know it's what's a slippery slope, right? That's right. What, like yeah. okay, well, now we want to look at it for, um, you know, state security. Now we want to do this. Now we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and. Ultimately, you know, the question of where does it stop and what, you know, when are people getting looked at who have nothing to do with child sexual exploitation or, have, you know, anyone that doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, any state or terrorist group or whatever, that all of a sudden they just fall into there because they're using the app. Uh, I mean, you name it, right? There's that, uh, I mean, you're talking about good, you know, documentaries. I mean, look at podcasts or you know dark night diaries or malicious life that cover the uh project raven where you know the uae was standing up um or uae saudi arabia uh now you're making me blank but i know a lot about what you're talking about i don't remember the exact location but basically right. they're able to basically outsource spying on americans kind of thing Right, right. So they, at first they started looking at or whichever word is it or what country that was, and I apologize uh, if I said the wrong one. Um, but they started looking at, they started spying on their citizens, right? Looking for state-sponsored terrorists and you know so on. And then, it, like it said, it went down that slippery slope where they were hiring NSA um, analysts, and then all of a sudden they started seeing Americans show up in their targets, and it's like whoa, 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 you know, like I, I think not that this would 
happen like that. But I think that's a good business use case to point to, to say, well, look what happens if, you know, this goes not unchecked, but it's bound to happen. Right. Well, it's, 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 I think it's the, the complexity of if you're trying to find bad and you're not finding enough bad, or you believe more bad is out there, you're just going to continue to look harder. And what's the justification to stop looking when you like looked hard enough in quotes. Right. And so it's like, you're driven by good intentions, but the problem is, is, you know, the problem, it's a problem that never goes away. So your solution to solving it is just going as far as you can go to try to solve a problem that's not really solvable. There's going to be bad people out there, you know, forever, right? Like Absolutely. they're never going to go away. And so you're going to think, well, gosh, we were, we either were successful or we were not successful because we weren't looking hard enough. Let's go further. That's kind of the mentality that I think gets people in that trap. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough situation to be in because it's, it's always led by some good intentions and money probably, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I have the answer on how to fix that, but yeah, this probably is not it. <laughs> and, and right. you know, Europe has some of the strictest privacy laws out there. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. But I think, and I think that's why I was shocked by it was like, really, this was, I mean, look at Europe versus the U.S. The U, you know, Europe, you have to consent to giving your information. There's like seven or eight levels of consent, right? Um, yeah, and this is like, them to operate differently, right? If they operate or their products in Europe, there's like a whole different list of requirements. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a. Uh, do you give us permission versus hey, just letting you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad it is getting pulled back. That's good to see. Um, but yeah, that, those were all my thoughts. Cool. So yeah, I'm going to touch base on some highlights to look, look for, for up and coming things. Um, one, our live podcast this month is happening the 21st of September from seven to eight thirty PM Eastern standard time. If you haven't been, it's a great opportunity to kind of join in the conversation via discord. Um, and you know, hear us kind of talk more on more generalized things and more things about ourselves. And, you know, uh, there's more people in the conversation as well. And we have themed drinks. So it's kind of like a social hour for cybersecurity, everything. Um, but it's a lot of fun, I think. So definitely check that out if you're interested. And then also, um, there is the Sands Fall Cyber Solutions Fest, which will be October 25th through 27th. So it's a free three-day virtual event. And I, you know, Sans, I can't speak highly enough. They always do a very good job because they have a lot of really great people there. Um, so it's worth checking out. Uh, Cyborg Security will be sponsoring it, and we'll have people um, as attending as well. So you know, you'd be able to you know catch us or holler out there or whatever. So those are two things that they kind of keep you know, be aware, keep on your radar. And with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting podcast today. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of September 11th, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, 
check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.